super excited to welcome Chris and Sally from Harry's. Some of you might have been fortunate enough to see um, Chris speak uh, with us previously around all things DTC and subscription. Um, but Chris and Sally are awesome. They're a you know, amazing that they're speaking together today because they come at things from slightly different angles. Chris, who's seen the director of direct consumer from much more of a kind of performance and like digital marketing type um, perspective. And then Sally from, you know, marketing and comms perspective. But, you know, in essence, what they're going to talk to you about today is how the two work, you know, so closely together. And, you know, Chris, actually, I cannot take credit for the idea behind this session whatsoever. Chris pinged me a while back and he was like, Tash, I'm seeing this thing. And basically all these startups just have absolutely no idea. This is your voice, by the way, in my head is what I imagined, Chris, when you were chatting to me. And, and he's just like, look, all these brands, they, they just aren't even setting up the basics right when it comes to brand tracking. They don't understand how to do it. And then they're like, oh, but we did this stuff on brand. How do we know if it was any good or not? So really excited to have them kick off today to talk about how to implement brand tracking to launch and scale your brand without spending a fortune. So Chris and Sally, welcome. Thank you. And over to you guys. Awesome. Thanks, Natasha. Thank you, thank you. So, Chris, that looks like that's presenting now. Fantastic. Cool. Take it away, sir. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Natasha. Um, excited to be here and talk about insights and really how to use brand tracking to drive business results, um, and ideally without spending too much. Um, but before we jump in, we thought we'd just take a quick moment to introduce ourselves and to save Chris the embarrassment of reading about himself in the third person, I thought I'd introduce Chris. <clears throat> so Chris's career spans roles across some of the fastest growing and most successful DTC companies um, in the UK and the US. He's led performance marketing teams um, at Grace.com, HelloFresh and Harry's, during which time he's overseen two successful international launches and two of those companies have since gone on to achieve successful exits, one through acquisition, one through IPO. Um, he's also an early investor at Tails.com. He was the US Director of Growth at HelloFresh in New York and an early employee at Grace.com, co-founding the original marketing team and working for the business in both London and then setting up their a US arm out in New York. Um, today he works as Senior Director of DTC at Harry's, um, which is where we met um, and both joined as part of the founding UK team. Over the last four years at Harry's, he's overseen the successful DTC launch of the business and subsequent rapid growth of the company in its first international market outside of the US. It's quite a big moment for us both. Um, He's built out a really wonderful team at Harry's uh, that spans performance marketing, creative, digital product, email marketing, and scaled the base at four times the speed of the US business when they launched. Um, and he's also uh, founded Growth Forum, which is a support network for CMOs, high growth DTC brands, um, and advises a ton of early stage DTC startups. Thanks, Sally. Um, and to save Sally the embarrassment of speaking about herself in the third person, I will reciprocate the favor. So this is Sally. Um, Sally's awesome. Sally started her career on the management training scheme at L'Oreal, rotating through various different functions of brand, including Maybelline, Lancome, and L'Oreal Paris. She went on to manage the cosmetics portfolio, learning the trade in a complex, fast-paced, and trend-driven category. After five years at L'Oreal, Sally joined Charlotte Tilbury, uh, a rapid growth 
venture capital-backed British beauty brand. Sally was a very early employee and scaled the brand with disruptive marketing tactics, leveraging Charlotte's extensive social reach to drive omni-channel sales. During her time at Charlotte Tilbury, the brand broke several sales records, won over 150 awards, and launched in the US, EU, and in the Middle East. Charlotte Tilbury was recently acquired and it valued the brand at over a billion pounds. In 2017, Sally moved to Harry's as part of the founding team in the UK, which as she said is where we met. Sally's remit has grown exponentially over the past three years. She now oversees brand strategy, brand management and campaigns, PR, partnerships, insights, shopper marketing, and product innovation. So together, um, as a partnership, we run marketing, omni-channel, online and in retail, and digital products at Harry's. We both joined the brand, as we've mentioned, in January 2017 to launch and scale Harry's here in the UK, which was the first international expansion outside of the US. Since then, we've established Harry's as the key number two player in the space, grown our DTC business significantly year on year and expanded into retail. Our UK office has grown from three to over 50 people. And we have a further 350 employees in New York and 500 in Germany, where our, um, where our factory manufactures the blades. Together, we run a team of 20 across marketing, brand, and performance, PR, digital products, insights, email, analytics, and innovation. And when we look back, we attribute some of the success we've had um, to a really high-quality, high-functioning team, um, a shared belief in the importance of driving both short-term results whilst also laying the foundations for long-term brand health. And as we're going to talk to you in this presentation, a genuine and obsessive approach to insights and ultimately the customer. All right. So today we're, you know, we really want to focus on insights. It's going to be a bit of a 101. It's like, what are they? What do you do with them? How do they help drive your commercials? And success for us is really like, think people here taking away some of the learnings and applying them in your own worlds versus this being a bit of a one and done. It's like, how can you take this away and think about insights in the context of your own businesses, whatever life cycle they're at? So next slide. Thanks, Chris. Um, Broadly, you can split insights into two buckets, primary and secondary. We're going to talk about primary today, but as a side note, secondary data is all the data that already exists. So it can be work that's already been done, stuff that you can find on Google, the comment section on your social feeds. Um, and it's wise to start there before diving into primary data, which is where you generate your own research through, um, through projects that you kick off. Um, and the key, I guess, with primary data is not to like look at it as something you have to do all the time, all at once, but really to look at where you are in your company life cycle. Think about your resources and your budgets and actually figure out like how you can have a go at some of this stuff um, in a way that matches where you're at in your life cycle. So primary data covers off three buckets. It can, it can be more, but broadly, these are the buckets that we'll hear people talking about. Qual is usually in the focus of, in the format of like focus groups, and it allows you to simply learn. You hear directly from your consumers, ask open-ended questions. Quant allows you to, is different, it's a different methodology, um, and it's, it's, it's with a nationally representative sample, so it's scalable, which means that the answers are robust. So, namely, like when you put them out into the world, um, they will play out in a similar way. Um, and it's often done via panels and brand tracking is an example of quant work. 
um, and there are a lot of panels you can choose from. Ethnographic is slightly different to both of those things because it's the study of people in their natural environment. So, you know, when you're running a focus group and you've got a bunch of people sat there with a moderator and you're staring at them through one way glass, that can be quite unnatural for consumers. And often what consumers do and what they say they do can be two quite different things. And so if you do some ethnographic research, you might be doing a shop along where you're watching them purchase in an aisle in a supermarket and you're seeing a lot more natural behavior. I guess key things to remember is like when it comes to startups I think we'd recommend like a light touch um, light touch qual and quant work and some mixture of both can be quite powerful like the qual isn't representative but the qual can't um, the quant can't give you the why so if you start with qual it can often give you some sort of open-ended things that you can then create hypotheses around which you can then test in a follow-up quant and like why should you do this stuff really actionable insights should be the driving basis behind all of your marketing strategy. They can pick up on your strengths, they highlight your weak spots, and, and when you read them well, they provide the unlocks, and they should inform your objectives and shape your tactics, and ultimately drive revenue while laying the foundation for successful and sustainable growth. So really the takeout here is that insights are fundamental versus like an add-on to your marketing strategy. Next slide, please, Chris. Um, right, so here I wanted to just do some myth busting because they can get a bit of a bad rap. Um, I think the first is really, you know, people thinking, well, I can describe my own consumer. So like what value add would insights give me? Chris and I have spoken to founders and oftentimes when we say, right, could you describe us your target consumer? What follows is like a very accurate self-description. And, and like, that's fine. Like that, that works for a time. But when you start growing and scaling your brand, like your consumer base will really start to broaden and talking in the same way to the same target will be limiting. And, you know, we really like this Ritson quote, which is like, actually, once you work for a company, you're in the, you're in the, you're on the inside and you're inherently biased and you kind of have to admit that you don't know anything at all. And insights really helps you like turn that light on. They can be very illuminating. Um, if you think you can't afford them, like try to stick to the 5% rule, which is like every marketing budget, however small, should be siphoning off 5% for insights, which will increase the productivity of the other 95%. So when you look at it through that lens, it can be some of your highest ROI spend. Um, and it doesn't cost for people in New York to be consumer focused. Everyone can spend an hour on the phone with the CX team. Everyone can run a lo-fi focus group and give like pizza and free product in return. Um, and thirdly, a lot of startups feel they found success without insights, so they're not sure why they should start in engaging with them now. And I get, I think the answer there is like, it is easy to get like one category pain point and one product, right? But once you want to start sustaining that success, it gets so multi-category, getting multiple things right across multiple brands, it's actually nigh on possible without insights. So like for, 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 consistency of success insights is crucial i also have a fourth myth which i couldn't fit on the slide but don't think that insights are only relevant for b2c they are vital for b um for b2b2 um the methodologies can be applied in the same way instead of thinking about consumers um being the universe by which you measure things you're thinking about suppliers so methodologies are relevant to both to both b2b and b2c Awesome. And I think Sal um, and I believe that, you know, all too often 
the divide between brand building and the use of data is really wide. And we see that time and time again in lots of different types of companies. Typically, brand teams compete with performance marketing teams. Battles rage over the split of budgets. Uh, on the one side, you have spreadsheets geared around today's sales. They reign supreme. On the other side, lofty creative briefs filled with beautifully crafted prose feel, to the DR folk at least, more intended for winning awards than actually driving sales. Sally and I believe that most marketing should be based around making data-driven decisions. And we spent the last four years at Harry's building a, a team and an ethos to facilitate this. Leveraging insights has been a key unlock for achieving this, and brand health tracking in particular has been a cornerstone of this approach, and one that we've taken really, really seriously from day one, and actually even before we launched the brand in the UK. One of my personal favorite commentators on the world of tech marketing and business is Scott Galloway. Highly recommend you look him up if you don't already. He has two amazing podcasts, books, um, and does a fantastic blog. He's the professor of marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business. And a recent quote um, really resonated with me in this context, and I will read it out for everyone. So it says, everyone says data is the new oil. No, it's not. Data is everywhere. You need to refine that oil and turn it into petroleum. Find ways of distilling that data into rich formats you can present, and then use the gangster processor located in between your ears to translate that data into information and recommendations that lead to better decisions and outcomes. So just think about that for a second. In so many businesses, Harry's included, we collect vast quantities of data, arguably too much. Data itself is really easy to capture, especially if you're a direct-to-consumer business. But how useful that data is and whether it ultimately translates into commercial benefit depends entirely on what you do with it. The ultimate goal should always be to only collect data if you can ultimately do something with it, make a decision, take an action. That's the key to brand health tracking. But firstly, let's ground ourselves in a basic principle. Let's agree on one thing. Marketing should always be ultimately about driving sales. It might sound controversial at first, but hear me out. Most marketers would say, what's the right objective for this campaign? Or what's the right objective for that campaign? And the answer obviously is ultimately sales. It has to be about generating incremental sales for the business. But the key word here is ultimately. With the explosion of digital marketing available at our, available at our fingertips, it's resulted in, resulted in an industry-wide almost obsession with driving immediate sales from all of our marketing activity. Now, clearly for early stage companies with cash constraints, that's obviously crucial. But as we'll see, focusing all efforts of your marketing just on driving instant sales doesn't guarantee success. And in fact, an over-focus on instant gratification can actually at some times be counterproductive and cost you in the short term. At Harris, we think about ourselves as being a highly commercial organization with short-term go commercial goals, of course, whilst also laying down the right foundations to be a successful brand for the next 12 months, three years, five years, 10 years, 100 years. And let me explain a bit more about that in the next slide. So this lovely fine chat here on the left-hand left -hand side, St. Elmo Lewis is an American advertising advocate. He's widely credited as being the first modern theorist of marketing, and much of his work formed the foundations of the marketing discipline that we know today. It was Elmo Lewis who came up with the first theory of marketing that for a sale to take place, the customer must go through sequential stages. The customer must have your attention as a brand, 
you must gain their interest, their desire, and then ultimately their conviction, i.e. a purchase. This forms the basis for all modern purchase funnels and ultimately the marketing theories that exist today. So 100 years later, 100 years on, the sales funnel is well and truly alive. And in fact, Sally and I would argue that against this backdrop of heightened focus on short-termism, it's more relevant today than it's ever been. But it's sadly, as we speak to lots of companies all the time, um, and we've worked at several companies ourselves, this is sadly absent in, in many businesses. Um, the funnel has many names. It can sometimes be called the purchase funnel, the buying path, but they all mean ultimately the same thing. But what is it and how do you actually use it? Well, first things first, done properly, knowing your funnel should be the basis of your marketing strategy and objective setting. It bridges both performance and brand. Done properly, it tells you the strength of your brand today, but importantly, over time as you invest in marketing and grow, helps you understand where you sit relative to competitors. And for us, we have a really, really strong competitor set. It helps you identify where in the sales funnel you have leaks, which we'll talk about. And it's key to defining and optimizing your marketing strategy and setting clear objectives. And lastly, it sets a statistically robust addition to all your other marketing KPIs that you talk about and look at every single day to help quantify the success or not of your marketing campaign. And in general, what we see is it's the big brands, the biggest average brands that historically have been experts at activity geared towards the top of the funnel. They lack the in-house expertise and knowledge when it comes to activity targeted at the bottom, performance digital marketing, CRM. Digitally native direct-to-consumer brands, on the other hand, have become experts in performance marketing tactics, leveraging Facebook, Google, and data to optimize and optimize. It's clear to Sally and I that the brands of the future will be the ones that are actually experts in funnel juggling. Those that are experts will know how the different stages of the sales funnel interact with each other, and they'll regularly review their marketing investments right across the funnel to ultimately drive greater incremental sales. This is the approach that we've looked to take at Harry's over the past four years, and while we definitely, definitely don't claim to have done it perfectly, we've made mistakes along the way, many, it's been fascinating and highly effective. So let's put the funnel into action, let's stop with the theory, and let's see what it does. Imagine you send out a survey nationally representative to a sample of your target audience, target market. For the sake of argument, let's say you send it out to 100 people. 20% of those say that they are aware of your brand. 10% say they would consider your brand. 8% say they have purchased your brand. And 2% say that they are repeat buyers of your brand. Now, while that data is interesting, and it's interesting to compare that across your competitors, not particularly actionable, actionable in its own right. What is crucial here is to look at the conversion between the different stages of the funnel. So let's look at that same example again, but let's look at those conversion rates. You sent it out to 100 people and 20% said that they were aware of your brand. You have a 20% conversion from your audience to awareness. 10% said they would consider your brand, but that's of 20% who are aware. So you actually have a 50% drop down from aware to consideration. Those that are aware, half of them would consider your brand. 80% who, who would consider your brand have purchased your brand. And in this instance, 25% of those that have purchased your brand are repeat buyers. Now, another way to look at this is imagine you're a plumber. And actually, I had one over to my house this morning, and I was worried he might overrun, and it would be very awkward during this presentation. Fortunately, he is finished. But imagine you're a plumber, and you've been called to a report of a leaky water pipe. 
you pipe 100 gallons of water into the pipe, but a much smaller amount comes out at the end. Why? Because there's loads of holes all along the way. Now, you're a busy plumber, remember, and you've, you've already, you're already running late for your next appointment. So to get the job done quickly but effectively, you have to decide which holes you're going to fix to get the maximum impact and to get the largest increase in water coming out the other end. You have to identify, number one, the biggest holes, the biggest leaks, and number two, which holes you believe you're most capable at fixing? What tools have you got that can be most effective? This is just how the sales funnel works in marketing. Every company has leaks in their funnel and your job as a marketer is to identify where are the biggest leaks and given the time and cash constraints of your business, which holes you believe you can make the greatest difference to over the next 12 months. Now there's a couple of rules here. If you have a big hole at the end of the pipe, fix it first. No matter how much improvement you make up right at the top, your efforts will be fruitless if they're all escaping right at the bottom. The second rule is the further down the, down the pipe you fix, the more immediate the impact on sales will be. If you have a lot of people that would consider your brand, the more you can get them to purchase, obviously it's more of an immediate term improvement. But that said, it's important not to mix, excuse me, that said, it's, not, it's important not to fix the bottom at the expense of the top. And as you can see, as we're talking about this, this becomes a really energizing and strategic conversation to have as a marketing team. We've had several of these conversations at Harry's. So let's get back to that example and think about how that conversation might play out. In this case, 50% that were aware filter down to consideration. And those that would consider 80% filter down to purchase. Pretty nice, pretty strong. However, only 20% of those surveyed were aware of your brand and only 25% have become repeat buyers. Very clearly, you can identify the areas for priority and focus as a marketing strategy and therefore, and therefore setting objectives. This is far more useful and actionable as a marketing team, and it's much clearer what you should be focusing on for the next 12 months. And if you really wanna be in the top 5% of brands, um, knowing your brand funnel allows you to produce dashboards similar to the one shown here, that can sit alongside all of your other marketing KPIs. What's important is that brand health tracking is done regularly to build up a picture over time, not a one-off. And this is a perfect example of where brand building and data comes together. At the top, you can look at your progression of awareness, consideration, and purchase over time. In the middle, your conversion ratios from each stage. And if you really wanna push the boat out, you can line up your marketing spend against the progress in your brand health KPIs to understand how much it's actually cost you to increase your awareness or consideration by each percentage point. And with that, you can actually look at how effective or not your marketing has been in any given period above and beyond all of the usual methods that you use to think about attributing your marketing spend to success. A great example of brand building and data coming together. So let's look at this by giving a Harry's example. Please note that actual values here have been disguised a little bit to keep Maria and our legal team happy. And if there's one thing I've learned at my time at Harry's, always keep Maria happy. So we did a survey before we actually launched the brand to understand our baseline awareness. And what we found is we actually had a bit of awareness, primarily from guys in the UK that had listened to US podcasts, which we'd been advertising on. We launched the brand June, 2017, with a mixture of direct response and brand media. And we saw immediate lift in awareness and consideration. A few months later, we turned our TV advertising on, and we saw a huge increase in awareness and consideration. Phew, Sally and I were relieved. Something was going okay. We spent the next 12 months continuing to invest primarily in a direct response heavy mix, and we saw continued strong awareness growth. 
However, we also saw that our consideration had plateaued. Importantly, this actually also correlated with an increase in acquisition costs and a decrease in acquisition volume. So it was having real-time commercial implications. Moreover, when we looked at the aware to, consideration, aware to consideration ratios that we talked about, it was clear we had to change tack. While we'd been really successful at driving rapid awareness, moving almost 50% of those aware of Harry's to consideration, this had declined to around about a third. We could continue driving awareness if we wanted, but persuading those that were aware to consider was now key to our short and to our long-term growth. And over to Sal, who's going to talk about what we did with this insight. Thanks. Yeah, so the brand tracking, the quant stuff that we had done had showed us where we had a problem. It had highlighted the red flag and we figured out that we needed to tackle the um, increase in consideration as like a strategic objective for the whole marketing team. And so we gave everyone the objective to hit a consideration goal by a certain time where we had another brand dip or another brand tracking dip plans so that we could keep ourselves honest. So we were like, okay, in six months time, we need this to be here. And we got all of the marketing team aligned with that goal. Um, and we went back into the data and we looked at purchase drivers, purchase barriers from prior insights work. And we ran some focus groups. We wanted to talk to our guy and understand like why were we being able to drive shallow awareness but not actually build anything more meaningful beyond that. In those focus groups, we showed them a couple of um, TV concepts and it was really interesting what came through. Guys were essentially saying, yeah, I kind of remember this brand. Like I kind of remember that two guys founded it. Like I think you guys sell razors, but what they couldn't tell us was anything about our products. Like why was it better? What was the proposition? Why was it different? And um, that really stuck out at us. And then one guy eventually just said, hey, can you just tell me like what you sell and where you sell it? And it was a really good reminder that we needed to build assets that really doubled down on intense product quality cues with clear call to actions. And that's essentially like what we went ahead and did. Um, so we, we, we built a creative that sat well in an above the line media plan so that we could persuade guys about our brand at scale. And we targeted a much broader audience than we ever had before. And, and here are some of the assets. I'm not going to spend ages talking through them, but fundamentally you'll see like a ton of close-ups uh, really driving those quality perceptions, talking like, you know, really showing the orange handle, which is an important driver for our brand as a consideration driver. We took the parent asset and we drove it through DR channels, through Chris's world, including TV and through brand channels. And we ultimately made sure that our hero banner during the campaign mirrored the above the line stuff so that all the traffic, all the incremental traffic we were driving to the site was really met with a consistent look and feel, which we know creates positive brand sentiment. And back to Chris to talk through the results. So let's go back to the brand health tracking. We ran another brand health survey immediately after the campaign and the results fortunately were what we had hoped for. We driven continued increase in awareness but crucially, per the objectives we'd set the team, a pretty substantial increase in our consideration. And when we looked at our aware to consideration ratio, the all important ratio, despite rapidly increasing awareness again, we'd actually made significant improvement in our ratio. At this point, 40% up from say 30% of those that are aware would actually consider the brand. 
Now, this all sounds all well and good in, in theory, but so what, right? Like, did this have any commercial impact? Again, marketing is ultimately about driving sales, right? Well, the short answer is yes, it did. We saw a 50% uplift in our customer acquisition, a 20% reduction in our cost to acquire a customer. The handle that we featured in our comms became quickly the number one most popular handle color that we sold in retail. And we saw a doubling of guys that said that they had a future intent to purchase the Harry's brand. This is a great example of seeing both immediate short-term commercial benefits whilst also laying the foundations for future commercial health. Marketing, again, is ultimately about driving incremental sales. So to wrap up, if you're thinking about this as an important part of your brand progress, like when should you do it? Well, firstly, let's go back to what Sally said at the beginning. Think the 5% rule. We believe that at least 5% of your marketing budget should be geared towards insights, including brand health tracking. 5% to optimize 95% feels like a pretty good deal. So if you're considering investing in brand channels, typically further up the funnel and harder to measure through traditional attribution, for example, TV and out of home, brand health tracking is very helpful. If you're seeing rising acquisition costs, slowing acquisition volumes, if you're launching a new brand like we were, or it's just part of your evergreen competitor tracking activity, it's really useful to see where they are strong and where they are weak. So how do you actually go about and do this? We won't talk in too much detail about this because we're coming out of time. But we generally find that there are two options here. One is third party using the likes of Lieberman Research. Uh, and, and these guys will, will, will get heavily involved and they'll, they're very expert in setting up surveys, getting the methodology right, making sure that it's statistically robust. And they'll send you a very detailed report on the results. Uh, the challenges here is it's quite cost prohibitive for a lot of companies, for most companies. Um, and it takes a lot of internal processing to review, to interpret in action. They're not ultimately going to tell you for your business and your brand and your product what it means and what you should do. Ultimately, unless you can action it, it's not that helpful. On the other side, you have companies like Attest, more of a third, uh, more of a self-serve option. And there's a lot to be said for a company like Attest. It's quite useful for uh, earlier stage brands with less budgets. It's cheaper. There's some support available for setting up your surveys. But again, just like with the Lieberman option, it requires a lot of in-house knowledge, understanding. You've got to crunch the data. You've got to interpret it. And again, you've got to understand what do you actually do with this? How do we turn this into action and develop a campaign like the campaign we've talked to to ultimately drive sales? So if you think that brand health tracking might be interesting for you, um, Sally and I are happy to discuss with you and, and help guide you to think about whether it's right for your company. Um, you can find both of us on LinkedIn, Chris Siegel or Sally Higgins, Feel free to get in touch. And we'll be happy to talk about this as it relates to your brand and your business. And on that, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it and look forward to your question. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Um, that was wicked. I am a big fan of Scott Galloway. So loved uh, your reference to him there. Also a gangster processor. I was like straight on to Miguel, like, Miguel, I want one of those. He was like, no, back in your box. Um, yeah, that was, that was super insightful. I think the way you talked through the, the, you know, the example of the pipe and actually understanding, you know, which parts of it are broken, but you can't just go straight to the source. You've actually got to really be thinking about the, the pieces around it holistically. I mean, I personally would have loved to see your plumber in the background while you're sort of on, on the call describing like a leaky pipe and he was just like, what is this guy talking? 
talking about. Um, awesome. Okay, we have got some questions. I'm going to shout out to you and then I'd love you to turn your camera on um, because otherwise you're going to get very sick of hearing my voice today. Um, Banu had a really great question around sort of actually when it comes to the, the different parts of the funnel, what the best ways to capture the data for the earlier stages on Banu. Do you want to um, switch your camera on and explain your question in a bit more detail, please? Oh, sure. You. Thank you. Sure. Hi, uh, great session. Thank you for that. Um, so I really think the, the data for purchase and repeat is is in house and a lot more accessible. But then for awareness and consideration, that's that kind of data is really not inside. And what kind of sample size do you look for surveys to collect this data? And and when do you know the this survey data is actually reliable enough for you to actually make sense out of these numbers? Great question, Banu. Um, so I'll take a first pass and you can build. Banu, you're absolutely right. So once they're in your system, once they are your own customer, thinking about uh, their repeat purchase, are they a loyal customer or not, it's something that you can do. Um, but yes, you need to go out to a panel and you need to survey a nationally representative sample of your target audience. So there are lots of panels available. Lieberman will go out to a panel and help you do that. The same with a test. And they will go out to customers that you can uh, qualify as either, a, you know, as non-aware of your brand that's, that's, you know, or, or aware. But you go out to a nationally representative sample of people through a survey tool and through something like a test or Lieberman or if both are, are not available, feel free to drop us a line and we can help you talk about how you might do that. In terms of like what sample size, um, it, it all comes down to what percentage confidence you want to have on the results. Um, you will not get 100% confidence. The best you can hope for is around about 95% confidence. And for the UK, that would, for the UK population, that would tend to be a sample size of around four to 500. And that'll give you a confidence of plus or minus four to 5%. If you do less than that, your confidence will go down. If you do more, it'll obviously go up. So that gives you a rough idea of kind of the sample size you'll, you'll want to do. Um, great question. Thanks so much, uh, Manu. I'm really helpful, guys. Um, uh, Guy had a great question as well. And I know, um, Sally, it was something you touched on, but, you know, for, for B2B, actually, kind of like, how do you possibly get sort of, you know, statistically relevant quant stats when, you're, when your numbers are very low? Guy, do you want to just sort of elaborate on your question a little bit? Hey, sure. Um, yeah, so I, I guess... Um, when you're sort of an early stage company and you're sort of doing B2B sales, you obviously don't have that many people sort of downloading your products. So sort of at the bottom of the funnel, it's quite low. And then sort of at the top, I guess the marketing budget's not there either. So it's sort of quite hard to go out and do surveys. So sort of what would you recommend there? Help, help me understand Help me understand your perspective a bit more. So you're saying that you're, you don't have marketing budget as a B2B? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we currently don't have a marketing budget at all. And if sort of, I don't know, on a sort of monthly basis, we only have sort of 50 customers sort of download the product or something like that, you, it's probably quite hard to get sort of statistically significant insights. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of what would you do there? Just focus more on the qualitative stuff initially? Yeah, I'd say so. I think that, you know, getting statistically significant, getting statistically significant results is only is, is more relevant when you're going to take decisions off the back of that that you're then going to put out into the world at scale right because that's that's what you're paying for is to have something that then scales up in the same way um, i think for 
a company that's like yours, you would probably want to revert back to qual and you might think about how you get some visibility of those people downloading and using your products, even though they're not consumers, they're suppliers. Um, and I know Chris has already given me a tale of being in a focus group in New York for a B2B business, right? Yeah, that's right, Guy. I think it's a good question. I think the fact is, you know, for very cheap, you could do so many of the qual and qual stuff that will still give you a ton of insight and give you some really good direction, um, help turn those lights on like we talked about before. I think what you could do um, to get a rough idea of your kind of like funnel health is you could get a focus group together of, um, of, of, of your potential target. And you could just ask in the room, of those 10 people, how many of them would be, you know, are aware of your brand? How many would consider? And so even on a really micro scale, right, it's going to give you some directional information. So yes, you're not going to get 500 people, but still you start building those blocks together along with your qual and you'll start building a picture internally that just allows you to make much better decisions. So it's just all on the slightly smaller scale. And as you grow, then you can go out to the market and use panels. If anything, I reckon there are some benefits when you're that small, right? Because you actually have the more personal relationship with the customers. So getting that more qualitative sort of information should be a bit easier because you guys, you know, have done all of this stuff generally directly. Um, I think often just not being afraid to ask um, is, is a key thing there. Um, really useful example. Thank you very much, Chris. I have a question on insights, which I put in the chat. Did you guys use insights when coming up with the colors for the handles? Or like, how did you decide on sort of, you know, that's a good question. How, how that sort of sat within the like Harry's brand like stuff? So I'd say that the answer is yes, but definitely in like a more lo-fi way, because at that stage we didn't have a brand. So we couldn't really do much, right? You couldn't do quant brand tracking. Um, well, Correction, you can do brand tracking pre-launch, which we did in the UK, but it will just tell you like, okay, we had a 3% awareness read at Harry's in the UK pre-launch. Can't really do that when your brand doesn't exist at all because you'll just be zero, zero, zero. So at that stage, you are definitely um, looking at more lo-fi, um, qual type stuff. And I think that the, the biggest category pain point that Jeff and Andy experienced when they were setting up the brand was really that like the category was so outdated. It was so tough to shop its shelf. It was just a sea of chrome. And that like all the Wilkinson, Schick, Gillette, everything was just chrome. It was like black and chrome and like manly because it's a man razor. And they were like, hey, we just really want to create a brand that is much warmer, that speaks to guys. And so they work with partners in Spade who are now called Mythology, but they were the creative agency behind this creative generation of the brand. Mm -hmm. And that was where talking to a ton of guys, they realized how important color was. And in terms of like those three specific colors and those three Pantones, like pr probably not a, an official testing plan, but definitely rooted in what guys were wanting at the time. And actually for us, that's been one of the winners of the brand is the color, because as a marketeer, you then have like a really available mental structure you can build in the mind of your consumer and you've got like that little visual hook so that when they see you in store and boots they're like oh that was the brand i saw at earl's court tube station on the out home banner so it's, it's really allowed us to like leverage our out of home and bring it into our website and our and our aisles um so it was clever 
I think it's such an important and often missed, um, you know, tactic, to be honest. Like, as you say, you had this sea of chrome and, and people often that kind of like herd tactic. It's like, well, if everyone else is doing this, then maybe we should do this. And actually being confident enough in like the brand and the position that you want to go after and thinking holistically mm -hmm. the elements of, of what you do. I think you guys, yeah, absolutely nailed that. I definitely, I went for the orange. I know I went for the dark blue handle actually on my one. Mm. The bestseller, isn't it, Chris? Yeah. Is it the bestseller? Mine. Yeah, best seller online. Oh, there we go. I'm in with the masses. So much for <laughs> thinking that I'd do anything remotely unique. Um, guys, that was so awesome. Really, really appreciate your time. Um, Learn absolutely heaps. I think, you know, essentially my takeaway from this is that, you know, insights are fundamental at any stage of your business there are ways that you know you can get those even if you are early even if you are b2b but to be thinking around you know as you grow and scale how you start to professionalize and actually look for sort of you know statistically representative um data to actually just make sure you're you're spending your money in the in the most productive or spending your time which is also money uh in the most useful ways and it's you know i did the kind of when you said uh uh, marketing should always drive sales. I did the like, oh, like, I'm like, oh, I hate, uh, but, but it is true, right? It is what we're there to do. And, and, you know, fundamentally every department of a, of an organization is there to like fundamentally drive growth, which, where does that come from? Well, it comes from sales. Um, so, you know, I think that's a super important takeaway. I'm sure the guys will share the deck that I will be able to share with you all afterwards. They've also really kindly given their details. I'll share that afterwards too. Um, oh, wait, hold on. Quick talk we had. A quick question just because Dee threw it in at the last minute, but just before we wrap up, um, which was how applicable is brand tracking pre-launch? I think that's actually quite useful. Any thoughts, comments, insights there? Well, the, the way we used it pre-launch where we're in a specific situation where we had like Harris had launched in North America and we were launching in the UK was to do a dip to understand what our like latent levels of awareness was because we'd had like, a lot of podcast advertising that the US guys had done that had reached UK shores so for us specifically it was helpful to get a read because then we had a true idea of the uplift that our launch campaign was driving. I think fundamentally if your brand is absolutely still in conception stage and you haven't launched at all you can kind of assume that all of those are going to be zero so you, you probably don't need to, to spend the money doing a pre-launch dip but if you've got a dynamic where your brand exists already you might want to understand what that looks like so you can just take the noise out of the data. Thank you guys so much Chris and Sally it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers guys. Thank Thanks you. Thanks guys. Take care.